hedge funds. Would you want them to be in charge of your mortgage or your credit card? It doesn't seem like it. You wouldn't want these flighty, fast-moving, highly leveraged investment speculators in charge of something like a pension, an invest, a long-term investment fund, something fundamentally important. And you would say you probably wouldn't want them in charge of money dealing. But recently they have taken on a outsized role in distributing money th throughout the financial system. And we're going to talk about that next and whether or not that's a good idea. But first, let me know if you're watching this video. If you are watching this video, did you know that you could also listen to it as a podcast. Yes, that's right. You'll find Making Sense only on Verbal and Apple and Deezer and iHeart, TuneIn, Castro, Google, Spotify, Pandora, Breaker, CastBox, Podbean, Stitcher, Player FM, Podchaser, Pocket Cast, SoundCloud, Listen Notes, Amazon Podcasts, and Podcast Addict. All right, so now I'm joined by Jeff Snyder, a man who doesn't listen to podcasts, but he is the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Jeff, we're going to be talking about an article you wrote about a week ago, and you start out saying, could low repo haircuts on U.S. Treasury collateral actually be a source of potential danger? A couple paragraphs in, you start talking about a repo haircut. We're going to start out going ABC basics before we get to the bigger picture. So what is a repo haircut? Quite simply, a repo haircut is the protection that the cash lender gives for themselves in order to engage in, in, in a uh, secured interbank lending transaction. Remember the motivations on each side. The cash lender wants to be able to lend his cash at as little or no risk as possible. And the best way to do that is if I lend you cash, you give me some form of financial security or collateral. So that if you default on the loan, whether it's tomorrow or a month from a month down the road, I can sell your security and get my cash back. I'm very much protected. Now, the price of that security might move between today when we make the loan and even tomorrow when you default and I have to liquidate your asset. It might be that, you know, a, a really risky security in a really uncertain market environment, it might be the case where that the, the overnight move is substantial. So I have to factor in how much leeway, how much margin am I going to give give you on your security, depending upon the characteristic, liquidity and credit characteristics of the underlying asset. And that's really all a haircut is. The haircut says, you give me a piece of junk, I'm going to have to give you a large haircut. So uh, you want to borrow $100 from me? Well, you give me $100 par value of junk, I'm not going to do it for you. But if you give me $120 worth of junk, I'm going to do it because that gives me enough leeway so that the, if the price of that asset falls tomorrow, I'm relatively certain that I'll be able to still sell it and get my money, all of my money back, not lose a penny on what's supposed to be the safe transaction. And so inversely, if you give me a really high quality piece of collateral, like a U.S. Treasury, especially a U.S. Treasury bill, I'm going to give you I'm going to give you credit for almost as close to the par value as possible. Maybe only a haircut of around 1% or so. Just, you know, to give me again a little bit of margin in case the the value of the asset moves a little bit overnight and you default tomorrow and I have to factor in a a less valuable asset. So the haircut is really a function of the characteristics of the assets being pledged. 
and treasuries, of course, or any of the major so sovereign debt assets are going to have very low haircuts because there's number one, they have low, low uh, they have the best uh, characteristics embedded within them, but also they have the most dependable markets, which is another factor too, because you have to think, is there going to be a market tomorrow when I sell this thing? Everything looks great today, you know. Going back to our junk example, if the if I'm if I'm not really certain about the ability to sell the asset into a marketplace that's that's functioning, then the haircut needs to be adjusted accordingly. So U.S. Treasuries low haircuts, low risk. You know, risk-free profile as well as dependable liquid markets. That clickety clack that you're hearing right now is all the people heading to the YouTube comments section mocking us for talking about haircuts. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Absolutely. The irony uh, here. The article in question, the essay, was posted on the 23rd of April at Real Clear Markets. It's a great one, folks. I encourage you to read it. It's the title is a profound statement in the ongoing saga of shadow money. And so, yeah, when we get a loan for a house, 20, 30%, that's the haircut, the loan, right? In case we get fired, we're unable to make good on the mortgage, that bank will seize the house and sell it. And hopefully that 20% uh, cushion that they have will cover the the cash loan that they extended us same thing with cars and then in the repo market which we didn't define as a repurchase agreement market where we put up capital market securities like bonds but sometimes also uh what stocks and mortgage-backed securities and what else agency federal government agency paper all manner of assets but usually u.s treasures right that's the most uh pristine stable market that you can get the smallest haircuts on okay good i think i understand that what about from the other perspective from the borrower you tell us here that this is a great deal for them because they only need to put up one to two dollars in order to get a hundred dollars worth of cash can you Explain how that works. Yes. Let's assume you're a hedge fund and you have a prime brokerage relationship with whatever prime broker. It doesn't really matter. They're all pretty much the same anyway. You think, well, I want, you know, being an investor, being a hedge fund and, and seeking to maximize returns, the, the way you maximize returns is through leverage. And it actually turns out haircuts are a form of leverage. If you think about it from the, the opposite perspective, what you're actually doing is because you're, you're buying a U.S. treasury, which really doesn't yield all that much, but if you borrow the funds in the repo market and say, okay, I'm gonna buy $100 of a U.S. treasury note, I'm gonna put in $1 because that's the haircut that the, uh, the cash borrower wants for the security, and I'm gonna borrow the other 99 from, from the repo market. Essentially, I've put in $1 for $100 in assets, which means I've used 100 to one leverage. And because this is a safe asset, with a very low haircut that offers me in this particular situation the maximum amount of leverage possible. So even if the haircut's 2%, for example, that's still 50 to one leverage. I put in $2 of my own money to cover the, the haircut. I borrow the rest from the repo market using the security that I just purchased as collateral for the borrowing. And then we roll this trade over day after day after day after day. And so long as the haircut doesn't change or the counterparty, you know, the repo market doesn't completely shut down like it did in October 2008. We can do this indefinitely because treasuries are not only low haircut, 
They're easily used in repo. In fact, you can you can actually enhance returns through other ways, which we won't get into here. But that suffice to say that low haircuts means high leverage for certain types of transactions. The next step in our journey here is the arbitrage, where you can make a return on some sort of small spread, likely, that mathematically or logically should not exist. There's a disruption in the market. And the arbitrage is that you're going to be able to go in and when the market writes itself for logical or mathematical reasons, you will make that spread. But as we were just talking about, you know, maybe the hedge fund isn't uh, in the business of being poor. Maybe it's in the business of making a lot of money and that spread is a small one. So they're looking to make a big return and what better way than, than, uh, than with leverage. What would be an arbitrage example? I guess one arbitrage example is if oil prices were extremely high in the future, but very low in the present, you would buy low and sell high. You would sell the futures price and you would figure out it only cost me $5 a barrel to store this. And a year from now, the barrel of oil is supposed to be $100. I'm completely exaggerating. And you would say, this is a great deal. I'm going to make good on this on this arbitrage opportunity. But you know what? It's such a good deal. I'm going to go and borrow as much as I can to make as much as I can because it's almost a certainty. And that's where our story heads next, but in the treasury market. Can you tell us the arbitrage opportunity over there? Well, uh, yeah. And let's start from your example here, which is that there's this really good low risk. I mean, that's what arbitrage means, low risk profit opportunity. And if you can see it, that means everybody else can see it too. This is not some hidden mathematical black box type of thing. And that's how markets are supposed to work. An arbitrage op opportunity opens up, everybody jumps on it and it closes. So these arbitrage things, these arbitrage opportunities are should be exceedingly rare. As you pointed out, it's not something you should see as a steady. You can't make a business off a, of a single arbitrage. You have to hunt for them everywhere else because the shark circle and they disappear. They appear and they disappear almost like anti matter and antimatter colliding in random quantum physics. So we have these arbitrage opportunities that do appear sometimes and then stick around. And it's usually because of something else, some problem in the system whereby everybody can see this arbitrage opportunity. But if it's sticking around, then that means that not everybody must be able to take advantage of it. And you know, a very good example that we talk about all the time is a negative swap spread. That was sort of an arbitrage opportunity. Now they've become normal, but back when they first happened, it was like, wait a minute here. The swap prices below the, the same same maturity treasury nominal yield, dealers should be jumping all over that spread to make money, and they never did, which suggested that here's an arbitrage opportunity. People aren't taking advantage of it. They must be constrained in some fashion to prevent them from trading it back into its normal posi position. Now, in the futures market, if there's any arbitrage opportunity, so any spread between the spot price and the futures contract price, that's called a basis trade. So that's what we're going to talk about here is something called a basis trade, which is an opportunity whereby the spot price of whatever asset, in this case, it's going to be U.S. Treasuries and U.S. Treasury assets, and the futures price of the U.S. Treasuries diverge. They create a basis trade opportunity for anybody to take advantage of. 
they always diverge. What do they diverge more than to? Is it the rate of return on a short-term bill? What is that divergence? You're talking about what is the basis trade? You know, well, I'm just saying in the future, the price will be different than the price today. Aren't they? No, what always- we're looking at is the mathematical calculation of what does the futures price say about the spot price? Yeah. And if there's any kind of difference there, it becomes an arbitrage because over time, if you simultaneously trade this, this arbitrage, what happens is you're never going to lose money. And that should never happen. So if you think the present value of the spot price is X, X dollars in the future, and the futures price doesn't reflect that number, then you've got some kind of opportunity trade away. Because in this basis trade we're going to talk about where the futures price was you know, completely different, it wasn't valued the way that the market should have valued it. It created the opportunity where you could short, short the, uh, the futures contract go long the spot price, which is the cash bond, and you could never lose because over time, those two things would converge together, especially since if you're buying the cheapest delivered treasury, that's the, that's the asset you're actually going to deliver being short the futures contract. So whether, you're, you know, whether the, price moves, the, you know, uh, the, the spot price moves over time doesn't matter because you've, you've already got the futures price locked in. It's, an, it's, a, it's a clear arbitrage opportunity where you're taking advantage of temporal disruptions in the way that the futures market is uh, it's not working the way it should. And we don't expect to see this because there are entities out there. You called them sharks before, uh, but we're going to call them money dealers. There are entities who are on the hunt and who have the ammunition and the desire and the ability to to smooth out these disruptions and these ripples of arbitrage. The money dealers are supposed to be doing this and, and we want them to do that. Uh, but we're gonna be talking about that. No, they're, they're not doing that. But here, so tell us a little bit about the money dealers and their role. They're the ones that are supposed to be doing this. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really their, you know, they police these, these markets, whether they're futures markets or any other, any really any market, including repo. And what they're doing is they're looking for these arbitrage opportunities to pick up a couple pennies along the way because you know that's that's kind of what they do. They make markets and they and they look at uh, these various opportunities and these these various trades and they say, look, there's a free money here. It, we, we don't expect it to be around very long because we know everybody else is going to jump on it. But it's you know let's pick up our couple pennies and let's do this in every market. And the way it's, it becomes useful, it's a useful fundamental uh, property because it means that markets become predictable, become flexible, become very liquid because we know that there's never going to be these kinds of frictions and inconsistencies that we're seeing when we talk about a basis trade and arbitrage opportunity, which is sort of a, a thing that it, it's a disruption in the marketplace that can cause all sorts of problems. And that the fact that dealers are there making sure that those arbitrages never really, you know, they don't stick around very long and these markets are very hierarchical and dependable and predictable, that's a good thing. We want these things to happen. But when an arbitrage or a basis trade shows up that lingers around or, or actually grows and gets bigger, you got you to gotta think in the back of your mind, what's going on? There's something not right here. Where are the dealers? Why aren't the dealers taking advantage of it? And that, to me, is really the story. Whether it's we talk about swap spreads or here in the basis trade, it should be, why is this basis trade there to begin with rather than, Oh my God! A bunch of head funds jumped all over it for many, many years. It's wait a minute. How do we have this massive? You know, it wasn't really a big thing, but the fact that it stuck around, or it shows up at specific times, 
tells you a lot about cause and effect. Audience, Jeff, that's the part that Jeff wants to get to is the why. Why is this happening? Why are the dealers not participating? But before we get to that part, we're just going to set the scene some more because someone did step in. The dealers should be doing this arbitrage, but they didn't. And therefore, there was an opportunity for someone else to take over the dealer's function. So we'll just talk, set the scene some more before we get to the why. Let me read this quote here. Yes, I, I want to get to the end. Right? <laughs> jump, jump to that's the best yeah, part. Let's get to the end. No, let, no, no. Let me let, just set the scenery. Put the, you know, where all the what the 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 sofa where it's supposed to be, the bookcase, and then we'll solve the murder mystery at the end. Okay. Quote. But and this is crucial. What if dealers in the presence of this basis trade arbitrage are unable or unwilling to take advantage of it? Put another way, what happens if or when dealers are constrained? And you're going to tell us about that someone stepped in. But you know what it reminds me of? And you mentioned that word just a, maybe a couple minutes ago. You said hierarchical, 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 in order, structured. That's what it used to be before 2007, Jeff. I remember seeing your presentation in Toronto in 2018 with macro voices that was the that was the focus of your presentation you were talking about the different rates federal funds and libor and the what the repo rate and how they should be hierarchical but after 2000 or starting in 2007 the hierarchy was destroyed and we didn't see the dealer step in to fix the the system the order put the planets back into the order they're supposed to be in and here we are again, another example, like you mentioned earlier with swaps. Here we go again. So, but someone did step in, the hedge funds. Yes, and so look, we have a basis trade opportunity that normally dealers would police and they wouldn't linger around very long. And again, it's not a huge spread. It's not like you're making 10% on a trade. It's at most, we're referring to a specific paper. What they found is that at most it's, you know, 30, 40, maybe 50 basis points, which is where the leverage coming in from the treasury, uh, treasury repo and haircuts comes in because that, that signifies or, or it incentivizes a certain type of investment vehicle to take advantage of what dealers are not. So if you're a hedge fund, which is why we've been talking about hedge funds, because obviously, spoiler alert, the hedge funds are the ones who took advantage of this basis traded and have in historically in the past. And before we go any further, let's 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 state that too. This is not something that just showed up over the last couple of years and this has never happened before. This is something that the you know certainly that we have seen and we have actually talked about this before, but in the specific paper that we're talking about, they observe the same basis trade behavior at very specific times going back 25 years. The first example was LTCM and the uh, you know the Asian financial crisis that we know of as a regional the first regional dollar shortage in the euro dollar system. Again, dealers constrained, basis trade, hedge funds show up. It, it same stuff kind of happened 25 years ago. It also it also showed up in in the opposite way where the futures were, the basis trade was flipped around and the futures were overvalued rather than under or undervalued rather than overvalued. That was 2008 around the time of Lehman Brothers. Again, dealers constrained, arbitrage opportunity, hedge funds step in. So what we're talking about specifically now is something that began around early 2018, late 2017, where 
the futures contract became overvalued relative to the spot treasury price, which dealers did not take advantage of and instead left open this opportunity for hedge funds to step in by shorting, going short the futures contract and long the cash bond, which meant they, they were borrowing the funds to go long the cash bond in the repo market, taking the leverage from the repo haircuts to add value in their terms to this arbitrage transit. So low risk, high return opportunity because of the repo leverage. And but, all of it put together, sorry, just all of it put together because this arbitrage basis trade opportunity not only existed, it, 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 uh, it, it continued for a very long time. Jeff, am I right to focus on that the financing for this trade was done in the repo market? Am I right to raise my left eyebrow in some slight concern on that? Not Is necessarily, that because uh, it, let's assume that the dealers were going to take advantage of this opportunity to begin with they would use the repo market too. Now there is, you know, it's not the same when a money dealer goes in the repo as a hedge fund because a hedge fund might go through a dealer. To, I mean, there are some sorts, there are potential for frictions and changes and, and, and sort of those kinds of things. But I don't necessarily think that's the part we want to focus on. I think other than the fact that, look, the repo market is connected to all of these things as it always has been, because what we're really talking about here, which is when we get back, you know, I think it was in the title of the, of the essay was that, look, this is warehouse activity, that this is what dealers normally do. And some of the ways that they finance warehouse activity is through these kinds of arbitrage. What is warehouse activity? Warehouse activity is what money dealers, their primary task, their primary dealer task is to buy assets that are auctioned off in, in the primary market. Not just the U.S. Treasury, not U.S. US Treasuries or from the, from the government, but even, you know, offerings from companies or governments, municipal bonds, whatever it be, you know, agencies, you know, Fannie and Freddie. We want these banks to buy whatever, what, what, what's on offer from, uh, from these issuers and then store them so that they can sell them to the public over time. Because if you had a free-for-all type of no dealer uh, auction process, you know, the government might, might show up tomorrow and there's nobody there to buy the assets. So we want financial institutions who have an incentive to go to these primary markets, go to these auctions, to buy up all whatever's, you know, whatever's being offered and then some, store it for a time and then sell it off to the financial public. And that's what warehousing activity really is. And that gave rise to all sorts of things, including proprietary trading. That's where proprietary trading came from, from these warehousing activities, because dealers have to be compensated to take on risk, right? If you're buying a treasury today or a junk bond, for example, and you're selling it off over time to the public, you have risk because you don't necessarily know what price you're going to be able to sell it off at. And there's also other considerations, too, especially when you're talking about U.S. treasuries. Sometimes the dealers might not just be warehousing their treasuries, they're using them as well. You know, the repledging, reuse, and rehypothecation that we talk about all the time. So warehousing isn't simply, you know, creating a stock of inventory of bonds. There's all sorts of functions that go along with it. And a lot of warehousing, warehouse financing is conducted in the repo market. So that's always, that's one reason why it's, it's a central backbone or a central access of the global funding markets is because it, it performs these very deep fundamental role in uh, allowing these these uh, the dealer process to take place but as this article uh, explains the dealers started saying you know we don't want to do this deep fundamental role and we're going to ask why and answer why later but good news someone else stepped in to do that for them the hedge funds now for people who do not watch making sense 
the date would not seem important to them. Early 2018 is when this kind of this rally in hedge funds stepping forward to, to pick up this basis trade began. But for people that do watch Eurodollar University, they know that the fourth Eurodollar crisis really began to manifest in early 2018. There were early rumbles, more rumbles, more rumbles. Sometime in the first half of that year is when it, it was definitely on. We knew it was on. And so do you, do you have the numbers, some of these numbers that come from this study? Do you have those handy? Or if not, I can read them out. No, why don't you, I don't have them offhand here. So, Okay, so the study done by Daniel Barth and R.J. Kahn, and they're both from the, the government. One is from the Board of Governors, Federal Reserve, and the other one from the Treasury's Office of Financial Research. And you, you said this was a true and valuable deep dive. And they had access to data that you and I do not have access to. And they noted that in December 2014, the total hedge fund treasury exposure was $851 billion. Okay. By the end of 2017, it was $1.06 trillion. So three years, 25% increase. Then by 2019 of September, it was up to $2.02 trillion. 21 months, 90% increase because the dealers were stepping back. Yeah, there was arbitrage to be made, and uh, of course the hedge funds took care of it. And what we're really talking about in terms of the dealer, pro you know, money dealing uh, uh, activities, is that essentially the dealers offloaded their warehousing duty to the hedge funds. For whatever, I mean, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But what's really what happened is that look, especially the government was selling more treasury paper. Foreigners were selling them because the dollar shortage. We don't, you know, we talk about euro dollar universities. Foreigners were selling treasuries. And the dealers said, we can't take anymore. Now, why they can't take anymore, we'll get to. But they got to their limit. And because there was a financial incentive, that also you know, gives us a sense of what's going on with the dealers if they're leaving free money on the table. But all, and that, the hedge fund system picked it up because there was free money for them to, to, to take advantage of. What might it all mean? You asked that question in your article. The authors of the study answer it, and then I'm going to ask you to translate it into English. Here's what they said. First, as a result of constraints on dealers and limits to arbitrage, an equilibrium basis can emerge in which the return on holding a treasury note to delivery in the futures mark is higher than the bill rate. Second, hedge fund participation in the basis trade is larger when treasuries are more costly to hold and as demand for futures contracts increases. Third, basis traders are exposed to margin constraints and repo market illiquidity, which in times of large treasury sales can exacerbate pressure on dealers. What, what are their conclusions about? There's a couple different things here, and I think I, what I what I focus on is what they said: costly to hold. Mm -hmm. Which why are dealers saying we don't want to hold any more treasuries? Now, the, the too many treasuries people out there said, well, that's because there's too many treasuries, and they reached the dealers don't want them because these things are poison. That's not the case. What the, what we're seeing here is that dealers are saying, you know, darn it, I really want these things because there's a basis trade that can fund this warehouse. I can make free money here. All I need to do is go long the treasury and I can make free money. I can't. It's not that they didn't want the treasuries, it's that they were constrained. Now, some people would say that's the SLR and, you know, the uh, surcharges that go along with it. The 2018? Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, they, you know, there were 
regulatory balance sheet constraints that are due to regulations. And that's, as we talk about this all the time, we've talked about it since early 2018, that dealers are constrained by their perceptions of liquidity and volatility, that they those negative you know, euro dollar squeeze type type factors had prevented them from taking on what was essentially free free money, free money. All you got to do is have the balance sheet capacity to hold a U.S. Treasury that's funded in the repo market. That's all you got to do. And the dealers said, we can't do it. We have to let the hedge funds do this for us because we're constrained through other means and other reasons. Now, regulations, sure, they make they, they, they raise the cost of balance sheet capacity. But if that's not the that's not the the final factor when when dealers are putting together their balance sheet designs, if they're constrained, especially if they're changing their constraints, that's a risk perception. In early 2018, to us, that made a lot of sense because not only is ri rising risks consistent with dealers cutting back, that's why the risks are rising to begin with because the money in the monetary the euro dollar system is dealer capacity and balance sheet constraints. So the idea of this basis trade being offloaded, the warehousing duties being offloaded to the hedge funds is entirely consistent with dealers growing more and more constrained for risk perception reasons, balance sheet space becoming more and more precious, which is the other side of monetary tightness in the modern system. And is that where you felt the paper went astray? Because you say that brings us to last year's judgment day or month. And that's where you said you felt their paper went astray is they, they didn't focus on the dealers is is that your yeah they had i mean look they, they did a, a you know yeoman's work up to that point in in describing the basis trade where it came from the fact that we've seen it back in L, all the way back to ltcm and all this they went into very painstaking detail to prove all of the uh, major points in the basis trade who was doing what i mean really good stuff putting together you know through you know, analyzing the the price changes and what which treasury is cheapest to deliver in the futures but i mean they went through any number of details that you look and you say this is really good and the problem i kept having with i read this a couple of times the problem i kept having with is wait a minute you guys are focusing on the wrong part of the story here you're burying the story you're 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 not i mean it's the hedge funds it's the least interesting part of all this it's the dealers as we talked about why is this thing happening to begin with? And this paper was entirely focused on, oh, let's talk about the hedge funds and what they're doing and what that may have represented as far as the after effects of last March. And what they were not saying, let's be clear, they were not saying that hedge funds taking on this increased warehouse duty role was responsible for the repo market messes and the treasury market mess in March of 2020. What they were saying was that because the repo market got into a mess, because the treasury market screwed up, this created another problem because the hedge funds were doing all of this warehousing offloading. And again, it's like, wait a minute, why do you care about the what comes at the end? Shouldn't we care about all the stuff that's at the beginning? Why was the treasury market blowing up? Why was the repo market a mess? Why were the hedge funds involved in this anyway to begin with? And it all comes back to the same thing, which is what they're avoiding, dealer constraints. And I think there's a couple of reasons why they avoided that topic is number one, first and foremost, is they don't really have any good, good handle on viewing the entire monetary system as it is through the lens of how balance sheet capacity, dealer capacity in particular, is the motivating primary animating factor in pretty much everything. So they, they did a good job focusing on the hedge fund aspect of it, put that stuff together. But it really... The headline here is what we talk about all the time is, look, this is very much what we see here in this basis trade saga 
is extremely, con it's, it's corroborative, it's confirmation of what we've been talking about all the time, which is dealers are constrained, bad things happen. Jeff, this is my last question, but it's completely unfair as we've already been talking for some 30 minutes and it seems like this will be a, require a long answer, which I'm not going to give you a lot of time for. So if it is an unfair question, then just if you have any summary concluding thoughts, let me know. But you end the article saying, and to make matters worse, it all depends upon the haircut leverage opportunity provided by the safest instrument. I simply cannot adequately describe just how profound and profoundly unsettling this is. Can you adequately describe that right no, now? No, I think Have all you... I, I really can't. I think I was actually, <laughs> that was not a rhetorical flourish to end the article. It was actually saying, I don't think I can adequately describe that because look, what we're talking about is things that are legitimately, legitimately correspond to safe assets and safe, you know, repo safe markets. And here we see how they're being used in the sort of the opposite way in order to just keep the system going. Right, because that's the only way that hedge funds could take on this warehouse opportunity because dealers were so constrained, and it's just it's 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 profoundly unsettling because, like, wait a minute, this, we're we're kind of hanging by a sliver here, only because there's this this quirk, this quirk that makes sense, but in a very different context and a very different opportunity or very different sense. Any final concluding thoughts, or shall we wrap it up there? No, we can wrap it up there. Again, you know, to me, it's just amazing that here this is this wonderful, pretty extensive, comprehensive academic investigation of a very important thing, except they, they focused on the wrong part of it. It's just, it's incredible in one sense. I mean, it's, it's tremendous work, but incredible in how that they, they sort of, the point just flew right over their head. Ladies and gentlemen, when you're walking along and merrily minding your business and then come across a red line. Do you cross it? No, no, you don't cross it because we all know that you don't cross red lines. But in the financial markets, there, in one of them at least, there has something of a red line that has developed over many years now. And where is the market? Well, it's deep, deep into crimson red, well beyond the line. And that's what we're going to talk about next. But first, this from Eurodollar Enterprises. Friends, do you direct the Treasury Ministry? Do your political masters expect foaming asset prices? Are you unsure how to produce lasting froth? Then a box of bath suds from Eurodollar Enterprises is for you! Yes, practice blowing bubbles in the gurgling luxury of your freestanding clawfoot tub. Find the perfect mix between liquidity and hot air with our Capital Markets Foam Formulation. Our bubble brew line comes in currencies, commodities, cryptos, and collectibles. Blow them all! Orders received today will come with a fussy central banker, typically retailing for the price of hedge fund general partner, absolutely free. Simulate the political arena trying to blow it in the presence of an erratic technocrat. Don't blow it! Not without bath suds! New! From Eurodollar Enterprises. Central banker swimsuit not included. History is replete with lines that you do not cross. Julius Caesar was not supposed to cross the little stream known as the Rubicon on his way to Rome. The Mason-Dixon line during the Civil American Civil War, you knew what side you were on once you crossed it. The Mendoza line, 
If you crossed that, that meant you were a terrible baseball player. Well, there's something in the long bond futures market that is sort of like the Rubicon. I'm exaggerating, of course, but at uh, a certain point, if you cross it, it's bad news. Well, where are we presently on this, uh, on this metric? Well, we're well on our way to Rome. We're approaching Rome city limits if you wanted to put it into those terms. So we're going to talk about that next. But before I do, I just wanted to mention, did you know that we have a sponsor? Yes, Eurodollar Enterprises is a 101% real business, serving the needs of monetary scientists, academic economists, and central bankers. Available, available for purchase right now are the Clench 5000, New Dictionary, New Dictionary of Economics, and Second Neck Neck Brace. Now, I'm joined by longtime customer of Eurodollar Enterprises, Jeff Snyder, also the head of Alhambra Investments Global Research Team. Jeff, we're going to be talking about long bond futures and open interest long bond futures that's like multiple long bonds right we're referring to what kind of time frames here yeah it's a bucket of bonds it's the it's essentially around the 10-year maturity uh and used to be long bond futures were all the long bonds until ultra bond futures were introduced mm. many years ago so mm -hmm. it's a specific part of the yield curve which contains a lot of different uh specific securities that are that are uh, deliverable or accepted as delivery for the contract. Let's define another term, open interest. What open interest is simply how many contracts have been written are still open. As the term implies, it's, it's the amount of contracts that are registered with the exchange that are, meet all of the requirements. And uh, usually the CMA uh, futures participants are, are involved in it. Okay, let me, so the number that we're interested in here is 800,000. And you're going to tell us that's really just kind of a yeah. back of the cocktail napkin number that coincidentally has shown that when we cross it, there's trouble in the air. It's not a firm number, right? But let me, let me describe. Yeah, I'm going to tell you that that's really a back of the envelope calculated number. It's not a real number. It's sort of one that we kind of picked out of the air. It's just, it's not a, it's not a hard line. It's one of those that you see time and again, as you were just about to say, and I rudely cut you off, was that, hey, it looks like when we get around this level, we need to start paying closer attention. That's kind of what it is. Open interest goes up when markets aren't very sure about what's in the future. Since U.S. Treasuries are the settlement product for a variety of shadow trades, especially derivative foreign exchange, what's being hedged here isn't really U.S. Treasury yields or the U.S. government's credit risk. So the more open interest, that means there's more hedging because there's more concern. I suppose that's what we're, that's the punchline. But Jeff, very quick point. I know maybe about a couple of years ago, you took a look at the total number of contracts because maybe the open interest is just rising because there's more and more and more contracts. Is that what we see in the long bond? No, we see that in some of the other futures contracts mm -hmm. where they're being, they're, the markets for them are being more and more developed. Whereas the long bond contract uh, sort of normalized to uh, history has sort of stayed the same. Mm -hmm. And it, the open interest rises and falls with very specific periods in time, which is what we're talking about here. And this 800,000 contract limit is really, we see that, mar that mark uh, uh, gone past, the market goes past that, that line. That's when we pay attention because historically speaking, it says, hey, 
something is going on here. And what that something is, or at least part of what that something is, is what we just discussed in the previous segment. There's the basis trade. This is the other part of the basis trade that we just got done talking about for 40 minutes, whatever it was, in part one of this episode. Well, well, tell us a little bit more about it, because I'm looking at my notes here, and it's just scribbled messy, and I'm not quite sure where I'm supposed to go next. I don't know who puts these together, these notes. Yeah, I didn't put my notes. I didn't write it down clearly. No, the base, <laughs> let's, let's think about what the basis trade was. It was a difference between the futures price and the spot price. So obviously, if there's an arbitrage opportunity uh, because of this basis trade, then we would expect futures activity to, to go along with it because that's that's half of the trade half of the arbitrage is to either long or short the futures depending on whether it's under or overvalued and in most cases what we've seen is that this basis trade we're talking about or we talked about before that the hedge funds were hedging or jumping on was where the futures market or the futures price of a treasury bond was overvalued relative to the spot price so that corresponds with what we've observed in these long bond futures over uh, open interest, which is, again, the main message, dealers being constrained, which is consistent with dollar shortages, and the basis trade confirming that. Because the dealers aren't able to do it, the hedge fund stepped in, they, get, they do it more and more, taking advantage of this opportunity left to them by constrained dealers, which is our telltale sign open interest rising, more basis trade, constrained dealers. Constrained dealers correspond to these same periods of generalized illiquidity throughout the world. And the, the, the hedge funds, they were supposed to have stepped in sometime in early 2018. And guess what? When we're looking at the U.S. Treasury bond futures, the long bond here, we see that we're approaching and then cross that 800,000 line of a sign of warning just as we had seen in the 1998 when we had the LTCM fail, and then 2008, the Bear Stearns, and then 2014 with the uh, the third euro dollar crisis that was focused on East Asia. And yeah, also- let's, 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 let's be clear here again, uh, specifically, the rise in open interest isn't the warning. It isn't, it's, it's just, hmm. That's just a signal. What it's really telling us what we should be warning, what we're being warned about is that dealers must be constrained. And that's triggering this symptom of the dealer constraint, which is then what we perceive of as the warning. But that's not the real, that's not the thing that's wrong. The thing that's wrong is not the hedge funds jumping in on the basis trade or shorting treasury bond future. Those are those are just the processes of of those are the effects of what comes after the initial cause, which goes always goes back to dealer constraint. So when we see the rising open interest and we put it in the context of the basis trade, what that is telling us is not that we should be concerned about hedge funds shorting shorting treasury bond futures and being long in repo. That's telling us that they're doing that because dealers are constrained, allowing them the profit opportunity to take advantage. That's what we're really we're, we're kind of going backwards, working backwards to a single point of, of causation, which is the dealer capacities to engage in normal behavior. Now, Jeff, where does the current uh, open interest stand? And would it be fair to say that seeing a reduction in this open interest would signal relief of the, you know, in the, in the system, the health of the dealers would be returning? 
Not necessarily. It would be a signal that something has changed, and then we need to figure out what that is. But so long as open interest remains as high, and assuming that it's not some kind of new normal in the futures market, which we always have to, you know, we have to pay attention to that possibility. But assuming this is a continuation of what we've seen since really 2015, 2016, there was a blip, there was a blip, a blip in the basis trade back then too during euro dollar number three, as you pointed out, that happened as well. But as if we're still in that same dealer shape going back to early 2018, what we call euro dollar number four. The, the where open interest in the long bond futures is today is consistent with the idea that hedge funds are still banging away at the basis trade because dealers are not. And if dealers are not doing it, letting the hedge funds take care of it for them, we have to then ask why. Because as everybody's probably heard over the last 14 months or so, the world is flooded with liquidity. Everything's awesome. There's no problems anywhere. Jay Powell has fixed everything. And if he didn't, Christine Lagarde probably did. And there can't possibly be any type of potentially negative uh, negative monetary impacts. And, you know, open interest kind of tells us, well, maybe dealers are still hugely constrained and maybe hedge funds are still taking advantage of the basis trades. So during the 90s, 2008 and 2015, we breached a $100,000 line and then headed just north of a million or approached a million. Whereas now, it's normal to be above 1 million. Normal. That's just the going rate. So it, you can see the severity, at least in that shadowy reflection. Uh, another aspect of this article, did I even introduce it? No, I didn't. Jeff. You've got to wave your arms energetically when I forget to tell people where to go. They can go to Alhambra Investments blog. It was posted on April 23rd, and the, the blog post title is The Warehouse Gap Does Much to Fill In Why There Were Never Too Many Treasuries. And I suppose that's your key takeaway from this article is to once again hammer home the, the argument too many treasuries, that the government is too profligate, that it's going to have its comeuppance and the market's going to boycott this government that's spending wantonly because we don't consider the collateral part. That's your argument here, right? In the media, we hear too many treasuries, but in the details, it's something else. Yeah, and it almost sounds like the, the, what we're talking about here is too many treasuries, right? Because as we said in the first segment of the first part of the show, dealers said we don't want any more or we can't take any more. How is that not too many treasuries? And you have to. What are we? When, when people were saying too many treasuries, what they were saying is that dealers were, were like the foreigners in the marketplace, rejecting U.S. treasuries. They didn't want to hold that kind of paper. They were getting stuck with holding more than they ever wanted to because they thought the prices of these things were going to zero. That's the common version of too many treasuries. That's not what happened at all. And you, could, I mean, we talked about this many times. I've written about it, you know, many times over the year. That was never the case, and you could tell simply by the market price. Dealers were saying, I mean, again, the warehousing job, the warehousing task of dealers is that, look, I'm going to sell off what I don't want to keep for myself to the financial public. And the secondary market price showed that there was overwhelming demand in the financial public for treasuries, whatever dealers didn't want. And as we talked about in this, this, this other paper, the, the paper that was, that was written earlier this month, that showed that, that the detailed the basis trade, what they said was, yes, dealers didn't say we don't want this treasuries. They actually wanted a lot of treasuries, but they couldn't take any more because they were dealer, their balance sheets were constrained for the reason we talked about then. And so again, 
just like the secondary market had told you all along, the dealers took a lot of treasuries on their books as much as they possibly could. They would have taken more if they, if they had the, had the ability to, but instead they easily sold them off to the hedge funds who were more than willing to take them off their hands, proving the secondary market price. It was never too many treasuries in the respect that they didn't want these things. It was too many treasuries only in the narrow respect of they were dealer, their balance sheet constrained, and they would have taken more if they could have. But the overall marketplace, there was never too many treasuries, as the market price had said all along. There was always a home for these things because they have value. They have value over and above what most people can assign to it because they, most people correctly see the federal government going absolutely crazy and think, well, there's no way that this debt is worth anything because it's just absolutely nuts. But when you think about treasuries in the context of balance sheet tools or financial tools, they do have, they do have significant value. That then there's not enough of them. My favorite refutation of that big general too many treasuries argument is the primary dealer net positioning of, of for treasuries. You remember that? I don't know. I think it's the Fed, New York Fed that has that data point. And you can see that from the early 2000s, they were net short. Get rid of this stuff. It's risk-free. Why would I hold it in a return world? But then just a week after August 7th, August 9th, 2007, you can see the inflection, how they started to get less net short and then get net long, and then the undulations and the, the movement of this primary dealer position just matches perfectly the it all, dollar yeah, shortage. It also matches 2018, remember? There was another spike up in 2018, which we were told, I mean, that, that was the, the common conventional explanation was that, oh, dealers are getting stuck with treasuries that they're, they're have to buy because the government can't find buyers, which was just total bunk. The, the dealers were taking treasuries and they would have taken a lot more if they could have, which again, is we keep going back to the same point is they would have if they could have. And then the, which means the most important part of this entire episode is why couldn't they, why didn't they take more? Why couldn't they have taken more? Why were they balance sheet constrained? The fact that they were balance sheet constrained. And that's really the whole point is that money in the modern system is really comes down to what it all boils down to is balance sheet capacity. I highlighted these uh, last two paragraphs here because I thought they were excellent and I wanted to read them all out to the uh, to the audience. I was going to read one, but I guess you've you've just said that and uh, audience, you know, go ahead and come read this article. It's really good. The last two paragraphs are really drive the point home. Jeff, I, I think we've got it all, but is there anything that we didn't cover in that article that you wanted to bring up now before we move on? No, I think people are, are already tired of me saying balance sheet capacity. That's the over. I mean, and we, that's why we keep we keep emphasizing is because that's really the point here. When you dig down deep inside the euro dollar system, that, that's what drives the whole thing. It's not not bank reserves. It's not physical currency. It's balance sheet capacities and all of the utterly complex at times, beautifully brilliant ways that that uh, balance sheets are put together, both on the asset side as well as the liability side. Uh, two months ago a U.S. Treasury auction went pear-shaped. You heard about it. It was in the financial media. Well, did you know that a few days ago, another U.S. Treasury auction went, well, I don't want to say it, but uh, the British say 
well, I can't say it because I'm going to blush, but they have another phrase for pear-shaped. And we're going to talk about that in part three. On February 25th, the U.S. government auctioned a U.S. Treasury security that would have a term of seven years. It went pear-shaped. It went very bad. It was awful. That's, I'm not, it was awful. That's what the financial media reported. One person here I'm quoting right now from DRW Trading, strategist Lou Bryan called the result terrible. Another person here, Sudabra Rajapa, head of U.S. rate strategy from Societe Generale. He said, it's starting to become a momentum trade and the sell-off is becoming a global phenomenon. Barron said it was a brutal auction. You might have remembered that on that particular day, CNBC and Bloomberg just decided to go off the air and air that disaster movie, 2012, that thriller where the whole tectonic plates came apart. That's all they aired that particular day. So you know about that. But do you know about one that went sort of pear-shaped that isn't being talked about just a few days ago in late April? We're going to talk about it next. But before we do, I wanted to tell you, my friends, that you can reach us on social media. But it depends where you are living. If you reside in Russia or one of the former Soviet republics or a member of the former Warsaw Pact, then you can reach me on Twitter at Emil Kalinowski. If you live in a North Atlantic Treaty Organization nation, you can follow Jeff Snyder at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. And if you are living in a country of the non-aligned movement at Federal Reserve Jobs. I am now joined by Jeff Snyder, the Secretary General of the Monetary Shadows and Head of Global Research for Alhambra Investments. Jeff, we're going to be talking about the five-year Treasury Inflation Protected Security, which is, I didn't really know this. I guess I knew it, but I forgot. They don't come out as often as the other ones. It's not as frequent. And that's yeah, it's surprising, right? Because inflation is supposed to be this looming disaster. You'd mm -hmm. think they'd be auctioning these things off every other day or something. There's so much demand for treasury or inflation protected securities. And they aren't auctioned off very often. In fact, it used to be they were only auctioned off once a year. And it was only until last year they decided, well, we'll auction twice a year. Does it matter that this particular treasury bill by the way friends if you wanted to follow this specific treasury you can and it is called 912 7 so just ask for it from your local financial press member they'll tell you what's happening if you want to read the article it's posted on the 23rd of april at alhambra investments and it was called what is it about tips fives auctions what was it about this one jeff you do mention that it was a little bit unusual that two-thirds of the offering was taken by indirects, which you explain as foreigners, mostly central banks and governments, who place bids largely through the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Is that going to play an important role in our discussion? Does it mean that the primary dealers have finally, I don't know, they've left the foreigners holding the bag? Is that what we're trying to say? Not necessarily. It's just the, the primary dealers were not enthusiastic about owning these things for themselves or for their financial customers, which is kind hmm. of interesting in, hmm. in itself because it suggests, I, I mean, dealers are usually all over nominal treasuries, 
Why would, why would it be mostly foreigners who are overbidding for inflation protection? Does somebody know something that, that foreigners don't? <laughs> it's kind of a thing. Uh, it's, it's, and it's not, it's not just foreigners, it's foreign officials. It's foreign, usually foreign central banks and foreign governments who are, who are bidding for these inflation protecting securities. Well, let's set the scene before we talk about our 91282CA7. Let's go back in time and take a look at previous auctions. And why are we doing that, Jeff? Because as you explain, these things, because they don't come out so often as the nominal ones, they have an ability to reset the market. Have I explained that correctly? Yeah, because you know the the auctioned off security are the most representative representative of that particular issue. You know, and it only comes out once a year. Now, there's usually two re- there had been an auction and two reopenings that took place every year, but essentially, basically one security, one five year tips every year, and so the market can kind of misalign itself over time, especially over an entire year where you don't have auctions to reset the uh, recalibrate. Uh, market expectations with primary and secondary marketplaces and i i suppose reopening is self-explanatory but what does that mean i'm i've pulled up a graph now and you've you've highlighted when the reopenings happen and you note that it's now four years eight months and four years four months what what is a reopening and is it essentially you're auctioning it's a different auction but you're auctioning off the same security that you had previously auctioned off at the beginning so the five-year auction the tips auction that took place in april of 2014 several months later by august of 2014 there was another auction but it was a reopening where the government sold the same qsip the same security the same identical characteristics when so the the uh the maturity by then was instead of five years, it was down to four years, eight months. So it was a reopening of the auction that had already been reopening of the security that had already been auctioned off previously. And then there was a second reopening in December of that year. And that was a normal, that was a normal pattern, annual pattern for tips uh, securities. The government would auction it off once a year and then reopen the auction two other times. Now, the graph we're looking at right now is the five year that was released in April uh, 2014, and you're showing the break-even rate as well as the real rate. Now, I'm just going to set the context, and then you take us from there, Jeff. The context was that in late 2013, Euro-dollar futures started indicating concern. The Chinese yuan and U.S. Treasury nominal yields in January of 2014 started saying, hmm, and then in what in april i think the chinese yuan really started to turn what we were witnessing were the beginning initial rumbles of the third euro dollar disorder is that anywhere visible in our tips treasury auction or what are we seeing within that context well let's explain what we're at, what we're showing on this chart first the, mm-hmm. the uh, real yield which is the, the the dotted pinkish line above is what you're actually buying in the in the marketplace and the red line below it, the inflation break-even, is a calculation that takes the difference between the real yield and the same maturity nominal U.S. Treasury. So what we're saying is that the market, on average, is, is expecting inflation break-even of the difference between those two securities. So you're buying the not, you're buying the real yield, and it's the inflation break-even that gives us an idea of what the market is thinking it is buying in terms of inflation protection. And what we see in April of 2014 
from the five-year tips auction is that suddenly when the auction was conducted, there was a lot more demand for these, this inflation-protected stuff than the secondary market had been thinking about up until that time. And as you just said, Emil, part of that was because nominal treasuries themselves were falling. And so the demand for uh, these tips, this inflation-protected securities at that time meant that inflation break-evens went much higher. And so it, it looked like it was very consistent with the idea that prevailed in the mainstream at the time, which was that the global economy, and the U.S. economy in particular, was about to take off. And as Janet Yellen was taking over from Ben Bernanke, you know, her big risk, or at least what she was hinting at, was that the risks were tilted to the upside, inflation, overheating, as they called it at the time. Have you drawn our attention to the pattern that we're going to be seeing over and over? Because we're going to go to another five-year auction and another one and another one and another one, and we're going to be seeing the same pattern. Have you yeah, that's really made it. that when clear we, here? Right. When we're, when we're looking at is we look at the five-year auction, the five-year tips auction a year ahead in April of 2015, there's another little bit, much smaller, but there's still the same thing where you see inflation expectations go up noticeably after the auction than before. So during these periods when the general consensus is that, look, foreigners in particular and foreign governments in particular, because they're the indirects of the bidders in most of these auctions, when they believe that inflation is breaking out, we see that in the auction. We see these, these tips auctions reset inflation break even inflation expectations, at least in the five-year maturity. The red line is going up. Red line goes up, which suggests foreigners want more inflation protection than the secondary market had believed. And we see that very clearly again two years later, April 2017, when the globally synchronized growth reflation after the conclusion of the third euro dollar shortage had ended. So it's been about a year now of recovery. And is is the pattern continuing, Jeff? April yeah, 2017? Absolutely, right there. You know, as a, you know, the idea, globally synchronized growth, the idea behind it gained more currency, more steam. There was again, indirect bidding at the tips auction, suggesting they want more inflation protection than the secondary market was thinking. Even though inflation and uh, break-evens at that time were still falling in, falling in general, the, again, the auction kind of reset the expectations over the short run, which was consistent with the overall idea of rising risks of inflation, at least in the media, if not the marketplace. Let's fast forward one year to April 2018. Now, same, thing. same thing, but the context is slightly changing, right? Because yes. now we're entering, we're cresting that roller coaster reflation ride up and we're starting to turn down. We're beginning to see what's ahead of us. And the fourth euro dollar shortage has started appearing. It appeared in September 2017. It appeared in November and December, January, the stock markets in China and the US. And if I remember correctly, April was when the dollar started to finally turn up. It paused in January. In April, we started seeing emerging market currencies start devaluing. It was yeah, the beginning. Go ahead. Right, yeah. that hadn't quite happened yet with the five with this particular five year tips auction. It had been, the U.S. dollar exchange value had only been rising for less than a week by then. Okay. So at that time, as you point, yes, yeah, you said, Emil, we're kind of at the tail end of what was that inflation hysteria, which was still evident, as you can see on the on the chart here, was still evident in foreigners buying inflation protected securities. So there was still that 
that bump up in inflation expectations coincidental to the TIPS auction. Let's move forward another year, another chart. What are we seeing here? Is the pattern continuing what, or what no? What aren't we seeing here, right? Now here we have the five-year auction in April of 2019, mm -hmm. which was very different circumstances because by then we already had a full year of rising dollar. We had more, we mm -hmm. had almost a year of euro dollar futures inverted. We had by then four months of the treasury curve, parts of the treasury curve inverted. Mm -hmm. We had also the oil prices were starting to crash again. So suddenly foreigners were not very much interested in buying up or overbidding at the tips, five-year tips auction in April of 2019, which is kind of consistent with how the narrative had changed about what was really going on in the marketplace. But then in October of 2019, because now we've started selling them twice a year, is that right? So now yes, we've got 20, another 2019, one. There was, there's two, two full tips auctions with only one reopening in between. Now this one confuses me because we're back to the pattern we're seeing, inflation expectations rising. What were, what were market participants thinking? I didn't, not the market. Not, it, what were the foreigners thinking? Because okay. they're the ones heavily bidding at the auction. Okay. And remember what was going on in October 2019. That was the start of not QE, QE5. It was the Fed getting back into the game. So you can, you can probably figure out why foreigners, foreign, uh, foreign officials were thinking, oh, we need more inflation protection because the Fed is doing what it's doing. Consistent with April 2014, consistent with April 2017. The narrative in October of 2019 was Fed just cut rates. It's doing not QE. There's all these helpful things. Inflation's back on the menu again. Got it. Got it. Yeah. No. Yeah. That wasn't my world view at all. So that's why I was confused. No, and it's, here, it wasn't but... the market view either. But again, that, I think that's what, what really what sticks out for me about these tips auctions is because they're so heavily influenced by indirect bids. It's almost like what are foreign central banks saying here? What they're saying is, oh, Fed's back in the marketplace. Inflation's back on the menu. We, we're going to buy our tips again. We're going to overbid and pay premiums for them. Now, Jeff, it's very important, you, uh, the, the foreign aspect of this. I think it's perhaps I didn't quite appreciate it the first time I read it. Can Just for my benefit, and hopefully the audience doesn't mind, the indirect bids, how is it? I guess I'm a little confused. Why are we saying it's not the market and it's definitely the foreigners who are signaling this inflation rising perspective yeah, can you help not me? the dealers because if the dealers were buying it they would be buying it for their own protection or for the protection they believe that the marketplace demands mm -hmm. the indirect bids are foreign central banks and foreign governments who place their bids for the same thing through the federal reserve bank of new york who then goes to the treasury auction and buys it on their behalf so the fact that it's foreign central banks and foreign governments that are demanding what central bankers say is going on you know, extra inflation and protection kind of tells us whether or not what, you know, what what foreign central banks are thinking of our central bank or our current story about inflation in the U.S. marketplace. It's not necessarily what the market's thinking, but what foreigners are thinking. And that brings and us... foreign officials are thinking. And that brings us to present day, Jeff. And that was yeah. the whole point of my introduction is we've seen the pattern now since 2014. We just had a five-year treasury inflation protected security auction. And Jeff? That's what, you know, Emil, what's interesting here is that through all this last seven years of TIPS auction that we just went through, 
Uh, we never saw this. Even when there was no reaction at all, I mean, even when there was no, as we look at the April of 2019 auction, it wasn't that tips, inflation expectations were so out of line that they they dropped. They just didn't go up. You know, that was you know that was the, the during these inflationary, or at least the, the narrative of inflation, those periods, those months, those auctions, we saw a rise in inflation expectations because foreign official demand for inflation protection. But we never saw selling or you know that we never saw under underbidding or discounting inflation securities and it's it's really kind of curious why here we are in april of 2021 when supposedly inflation at least the rhetoric about inflation is completely out of control that this is the, this stuff is coming it's looming it's 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 guaranteed and here we have an one specific audience that has in the past been so susceptible to that very narrative saying not only do we not believe it, we're not going to bid for it. That's what really sticks out to me is that, wait a minute, these are the people who are gullible. These are the idiots who all fight time and again fall for the inflation story. And in April 2021 of all times, they say, not only do we not buying it, we're actively not participating in it. That's, you know, this is by no means a top tier indication. It's not like a we need to hang our hat on this. It's just one of those curious things that you look at and say this is so far against what we're supposed to think and what we're supposed to believe it's one of those you just kind of pay attention to it and ask yourself what must be going on here you know in that movie 2012 it starred Thandiwi Newton Amanda Peet and Beatrice Rosen there were some men in the movie too Jeff but I, that's not why I went to go see it Jeff on Bloomberg and on CNBC, are they replaying 2012 now, the disaster movie thriller, action thriller? Because this seems like a serious message, but it goes against the narrative, doesn't it? So I'm guessing your answer is not, no. Yeah, I'm not really sure I've seen it anywhere. I don't think I even saw any articles printed in the usual places. Right. But that, the articles should be saying should, something. <laughs> at least I mentioned, hey, this this kind of went, this, this didn't go the way we thought it would. You know, it's just something because it is an oddity. It's a curiosity. And maybe it is just an anomaly. Maybe there was a technical reason I'm not aware of that's, that, that prevented the indirect bids from going crazy for this stuff. I don't think so because I generally pay too much attention to this kind of stuff to begin with but it's you know here we are april 2021 the audience for the inflation these are the people that buy this stuff and all of a sudden they didn't just something to keep in mind keep in back of your head the next time you hear about inflation being this foregone conclusion i remember one of the themes of our previous shows when we were talking about fedwire was the difference between anomalies that remain anomalies and anomalies that become triggers and yeah, this is just another anomaly in the collection of anomalies. And uh, we shall see over time whether it leads to a trigger in the market's reevaluation of uh, recovery and reflation. We shall see. Jeff, great show. Did we not cover something that we should have in this article before uh, we end the show and go into the weekend? No, I think we got it all here. Except, you know, the theme of this show entirely is dealer balance sheet constraints and what dealers want and what dealers are doing and you know putting that in, in the context of the tips auction they don't they don't really care for this they don't buy the tips they're not the ones who are buying the tips which is i mean itself it's, it's another one of those things you put in the back of your mind how am i going to ask david parkins to illustrate dealer balance sheet constraints 
you'll come if up you with something. If you figure that one out, let me know, because I've been trying to figure out how to explain it for many, 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 many years. And leave it to David to find a way to do it. He would, too. All right. Great show, Jeff. I enjoyed it. I'll talk to you next week. All right. Take care, Emil. <laughs>